This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Raise Your Game. I'm Christine Wong. I've got Tevis Trower, founder and CEO of Balance Integration, as well as a leadership futurist, greatness advocate, culture strategist, and author of the book, The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. We'll be discussing the book and possibly more today. So I have been working with corporations for almost 20 years. Um, Prior to that, I was a senior executive and a lot of Fortune 500s, as well as some startups. And one thing that really struck me was, why is it that we work so hard to get into the positions that we aspire to and very quickly find ourselves hating our jobs? And so that question really led me on an odyssey of examining what is it about our relationship with work and how that unfolds that oftentimes leads us to be at odds with what our expectations are as opposed to what the reality is. So that has been my work for almost 20 years. And thank you for asking about it. Since that's a big cornerstone of your motivation, right, for for what you do, how do you think the pandemic has affected our relationships with what really drives us um, when it comes to the work life, I guess? It's a really poignant question because the Wall Street Journal just published an article talking about how so many people are quitting their jobs. Mm -hmm. And right now the pendulum is swinging back. I think the talk about humanity at work for the past couple of years has been empathy, building trust, transparency, vulnerability, a sense of passion and commitment. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the humanistic side of why we go to work every day. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of us, it's kind of a duh, right? Well, of course these things would matter, right? But for a lot of us, these concepts really prompt some serious consideration. And part of what I've been watching is how these concepts are being parlayed about whether it's in Harvard Business Review, whether it's in the business press or whether it's on LinkedIn or what have you with a lot of head nodding, right? Well, yes, of course, I believe in empathy. Well, yes, of course, I want my employees to be engaged. Well, yes, of course, right? And a part of what I'm watching, which I think some of us who watch corporate culture have really expected, is that... The pandemic forced a lot of companies to move into policy shifts that had long been under discussion, policy shifts around flexibility, around recruitment, around um, sensitivity to personal situations. Um, And there was a certain amount of exposure that happened, right? Like suddenly you could really see who had the penthouse or the mansion and who was living in the one bedroom apartment. And so you saw this kind of dance between um, having a fake screen behind you and being really transparent, right? And so a lot of questions about who are we really came to surface. And one thing I'm watching now is that globally, we're somewhat moving out of the pandemic because of the availability of vaccines, Mm -hmm. that 
there's kind of a snap back, right? We're snapping back from some of the more humanistic approaches to going to work every day to more command and control. Now, this is ironic because so many of the productivity studies have really borne out that you don't have to be on top of your workers to get the best out of them. The whole story about the productivity hours going through the roof, that people work even harder from home, that they feel more discretionary time, discretionary effort. I mean, there there's so much to really justify this aspirational assumption that if you hire good people and you charge them and empower them with a mission that all of us want to do a good job. Edward Deming said this back in, gosh, I think the early 1900s, mm-hmm. right? He said, no one goes to work every day to do a bad job. Yeah. Right? That, that there is something inherent in the human being to want to produce. And I think that this is reinforced by nature, right? You don't see a blade of grass not wanting to be a blade of grass. You um, can look to Montessori and you can look at a lot of the educational experts and see that, that, that the human being by nature wants to acquire information and wants to contribute to society. So I think that there's, there's so much here for us to really pause and consider why would this pendulum be swinging back in such a really extreme way. Um, mm-hmm. Harris Interactive in May published a study that showed, yeah, sure, 27% of those um, surveyed said they want to go back to work. The majority of people want a hybrid environment. And a third say, I really just want remote work, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that the murmur on the street is that the ax is really going to drop and a lot of legacy companies are going to be saying, oh, no, 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 you have to go back to work, really speaks to an underlying current of lack of trust. And I've led numerous panels on trust. I've spoken to experts who have led studies on trust. And it's just really an interesting thing to me that... Our lack of trust between employer and employee has actually been proven to be unsubstantiated by virtue of how hard everyone worked. Mm -hmm. Um, That despite that, here we are looking at the snapback to command and control. Uh, And it's an interesting moment. Absolutely. I mean... Just taking a look through the book as well, it gets very existential, which I think is going to be kind of interesting to talk about later on. But before we get into the meat of of what's in the book itself, uh, which is the Game Changers Guide to Radical Success, I do want to ask you what spurred you to to put this into text. You walk around and you have this question burning in your heart. Why is it that we think that happiness and success are somehow mutually exclusive, Mm. right? Or that we can obtain success and that it's somehow going to equate to happiness after we obtain it, right? That, That if we check the right boxes, right? If we get the right house, we get the right title, we get the right spouse, we get the right toys, right? We get the right team, right? We get the right this or that, that somehow that equates 
to happiness. And um, I was a lead consultant on a cultural shift at Bloomberg. And um, we kept talking about engagement, right? We kept talking about how high performers are usually the first to burn out, which is kind of an irony, right? Like Mm. they're high performers. Wouldn't you think they'd be organized around um, sustainable success? And so we created a program called Momentum. Mm -hmm. We named it Momentum specifically because we knew that it had to speak to that drive to really be at your best. And so through that, I coached a couple hundred top performers and I sat down with them. They had signed up for something called Momentum, but so much of what we ended up talking about was the sense of, for lack of a better word, alienation from their own lives. Hmm. Um, The sense of, okay, I've created this thing and I'm perpetuating it, but I don't even know who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. I had um, really top, top executives asking themselves, what does my life picture look like right now? Mm -hmm. So, so I would read to them the very same snapshot they had given me. And then I would ask them, what do you want? So for anyone that's listening, or for you too, I mean, you're a very successful person, right? Like it's this whole question of what do you want? A lot of times we can name our next rung on the ladder. Mm -hmm. We can name some kind of external accomplishment like, oh, I want to publish a book or, oh, I want to build a bigger radio show or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We can name those things, but oftentimes what we're looking at is extrinsic ratchets up the ladder, right? It's not so much about who we are as a human being that is going to be brought fully alive through whatever it is that we aspire to. So part of what, it was so funny too, my client sat me down after a couple of rounds of this and she said, what's really going on? And I said, it's amazing. You've got really driven people, but there's a poverty of the soul. And she looked at me and she nodded and she said, I get it. For all the wealth that we create, I like to say this too. It's like for all of our skills and our talents, and believe me, I count myself among them because the only reason I can teach this stuff is that I can relate. Mm. Like for all of our skills and talents and all of our ability to set goals and to reach them, we're at a banquet and we're starving. It's been really lovely to look at that and say, well, do we have to blow up our lives in order to be happy? And my strong, strong conviction is no. Hmm. The point isn't that you have to quit your job or you have to blow up your marriage or you have to, the point isn't any of these acts of violence towards what you built. Mm -hmm. It's more that you integrate an act of empathy and compassion towards yourself into that amazing picture that you've built. And that is what we are not skilled in doing. That is what our culture does. Our culture does not teach us that these things are not only mutual 
successes, right? Mm -hmm. Mutually compatible, but actually they're symbiotic, right? right? When we look at this amazing success that we create for ourselves and the extrinsic world and all the box checking, that when we start to say, okay, I'm going to cultivate some self into that picture, that everything that we built gets even better and richer. Right. And that's what I'm excited about. Fantastic. Well, we're going to take a short break, but after that, I will be continuing my conversation with Tevis Chara, founder and CEO of Balance Integration and author of the book, The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. Uh, stay tuned to Raise Your Game on BFM 89.9. Beyond Frivolous Matters, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Listening to Raise Your Game, I'm Christine Wong, and today I've got Tevis Trower, who is the author of the book The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success and also the founder and CEO of Balance Integration. Basically, she's passionate about helping people to find their intrinsic motivation, I think is really the, the key here. And uh, before the break, we talked a little bit about how she got into a current line of work and also what spurred her to, to write this book. But now I do want to focus a little bit on the book itself. Now, I, I don't want to spoil the whole book, but there were a couple of big existential questions that get asked in the book. So um, first of all, the book is split into three sections. You've got pre-game planning, in-play, and game on. Generally speaking, it trends towards the existential. Um, so the first question is just, am I living or just existing? Tell me about that. This is so funny. Um, you're right. Um, my book is based on questions, not answers, because I think that so many of the conversations out there are about top tips, right? Mm. Top tips, 10 ways to blah, 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 da, da, da. And I was really clear in writing a book that I wanted to follow the old adage that it's not the answer that enlightens, it's the question. Mm -hmm. So years ago, I was traveling in Italy. I just led an executive retreat in Southeast Asia with 60 CEOs and I happened to, to wander by a wall that said, stai vivendo o esistendo, right? And I don't speak Italian, so please don't, don't crucify That's me over okay. my... That's all right. I don't speak Italian either. <laughs> <laughs> but it basically said, are you living or existing? And I thought about that question. I thought, wow, so, so many of us create a structure through which we exist, but we've really surrendered this question of what is going to make me feel alive. To me, this idea that so many of us do have all these skills and we do have the ability to set goals and to navigate towards them in life, but we very rarely integrate self into that picture that, that, that really kind of made me ask questions about what if, right? And what are the power structures on our planet that that impact the lives of so many? What is the baseline assumption about our relationship with work and how does that play out? Because our leaders themselves aren't truly living in fulfillment. They aren't truly thriving. Mm -hmm. And so that's where that question came from. And part of what's been so beautiful because I lead people through the book, obviously, 
And part of what's so beautiful is you ask an open-ended question like that, people really dig in. Like, what does it mean? How do I apply that to myself, et cetera? And I apply it to myself all the time. Like, have I created a day in which um, I'm not only accomplishing the tasks and the goals I've set for myself, but have I made room to really live? Right. Absolutely. That question of, you know, what would help you make that shift from just existing to living, I think ties into the next question I want to ask from your book, which is how will I know what to do? And you mentioned earlier that it's not necessarily to um, to blow up your life. Right. You know, you don't have to quit your job, don't have to divorce your spouse or anything like that. But but there is that question of, you know, once you come to the realization that, you know, you are maybe just in the state of existence, what next? Right. How will I know what to do? Knowing does not come from some kind of cognitive pathway that someone else shows you. Knowing is an inner sense. And the neurons throughout our body possess knowing. It's not just the data warehouse of our brain, right? Knowing comes from a felt sense. It comes from an inherent yes. Like, you know a yes that transcends ego, it transcends pecking order, it transcends what your mom told you or what your dad told you or what your teacher told you. And what I really believe is that to be a game changer, we have to be true to ourselves first and to listen to the inner yes and the inner no. Mm. And so so how will you know what to do? Believe it or not, your body is going to tell you. Right. Mm. Like it's kind of um, leaning into, I guess, like what people call like the gut feeling, right? Well, gut's a great word for it because um, it gives us a safe place to talk about it. But but it's almost like those absurd moments where you're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. It just feels right. Mm. Interesting. Now, I also want to highlight two of the questions from the last section of the book. I don't know what this says about me. I thought this was the scariest <laughs> question in the whole book. Um, right. so, I love it. Yeah, so uh, full, full transparency there. Uh, and the question is, what will happen if I fail? Um, and I Ooh. think this is something that, um, again, I don't know what this says about me, that I, I just read that question and I just got like chills. Tell me a little bit about that, right? Like, why is that so scary? What will happen if I fail? Well, first and foremost, I want to acknowledge you because I think the worst fear for most of us, whether it's public speaking, divorce, loss of a job, anything, all of it equates to failure, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Exposure, being seen. And one of the things I've learned in working with high performers is that so much of what drives our obsession to accomplish is our fear of what will happen if we don't accomplish. Mm -hmm. And that's such a beautiful thing to harness because when I included that question in the book, part of what I wanted to invite people to consider is that if you are solid in your relationship with yourself and if you have made choices all along the way that align with yourself, and something doesn't work out or you happen to deviate, you happen to lose connection and make a bad choice, 
the whole point, and it's going to sound sappy, like, and I really don't mean to play the everything's a lesson card, <laughs> right? But, but the reality is learning from your relationship with failure, mm. right? So for you to read that question and be so terrified by it is a huge invitation for you to ask yourself, what haven't I done mm. because I was afraid to fail? Or how have my past failures somehow inhibited me in being true to myself? Mm-hmm. Right? Because the point is that failure only exists in relationship to the paradigms that we've set out for ourselves. Like, i.e., I've got to hit this metric. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Well, whether it's your freaking vision board or your five-year career plan or your personal aspirations around whatever it is you want to accomplish next, all of that is based on some sense of, I count, I don't count. Mm -hmm. I'm okay, I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And none of it has anything to do with stepping into sovereignty and alignment with yourself, right? It's all extrinsic stuff. So the invitation and what happens if I fail is, well, damn it, I hope you're failing. Mm -hmm. I hope you're reaching for stuff that eludes you. I hope you are. Because if you're not, how the heck are you going to grow? And that's really embedded in this book throughout is, is how do you give yourself freedom to to wiggle inside of those goals, right? Right. And if you do, you just might surprise yourself. And not only that, but the failures may have may actually lead you to something better. Mm. Right. The last question in the book is essentially, you know, once you've sort of asked yourself all these really difficult questions and, and sort of come to this new new approach, right, with life is how do I sustain this way of being over time? And I think that's also really important because, you know, all those like, as you mentioned, those top 10 tips or whatever, a lot of the time, I mean, look at like New Year's resolutions, right? We all are guilty of making this whole list of trying to be better. And then it by like the 5th of January, we don't do it anymore. So how do I sustain this way of being over time? Let's let's wrap up the conversation with that. The question that you asked, how do I sustain this way of being over time? That's the last question. And it's basically going to have you harvest everything that you've learned about yourself, not because of a should and not because of a top 10 tip, but part of what you've seen, part of what you've seen the payoff is of each shifted choice, each shifted awareness, each shifted action, you're going to be harvesting them into a sustainable success toolkit that is going to look like yours. It's not going to look like anybody else's. It's going to be turbulence tested. It's going to be road proofed and it's going to give you practices and reminders that no matter what is going on in the world, no matter what curveball life throws you, you're going to have a list of reminders of things that you can do because you've done them and you've felt the payoff. Again, it's not a should, it's an, oh yeah, I have. And that worked. And maybe it's so funny. I was coaching a senior executive and we were talking about confidence. And that was one of the things that she really is working for. 
And it was the simplest thing. She said, I realize when I sit up straight, I feel more confident. Now this, does that take time? No. Does it blow up her marriage or her job? No. Is it simply her honoring her own wisdom to say, wow, if I sit up straight, I feel more powerful. And that's really what a sustainable success uh, toolkit is about, is it's about all these little teeny tiny things that we forget to do in the heat of the moment that actually bring us so much closer to being this optimal human being that all of us have inside of us. Fantastic. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Tavis, for coming on Raise Your Game today. Thank you so much, Christine. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Raise Your Game with me, Christine Wong, speaking to Tevis Trower, founder and CEO of Balance Integration and author of the book, The Game Changer's Guide to Radical Success. This is BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.